name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The object of the exercise is to help us love God more, and so it's worth knowing at the very beginning that it's the will which is important rather than the understanding. A person could be very clever and know all the answers, but if his heart wasn't right, that wouldn't help him. And so in this matter, it's very important to pray. In fact, you can't do anything unless you pray. So if you haven't been in the habit of praying, then you really must start. And how do you start? Well, I suppose, get on your knees before you go to bed and just ask God to help you. Maybe say, Dear God, teach me to love you. If you did that every day for a bit, that would be a start. And then God would lead you on from there. If we don't pray, we never get anywhere. Prayer sort of gets the soul moving towards God. And so it's very important to try to get into a habit of praying every day. But we'll start off now and just see how we go. I'll start sort of explaining words, because my job is chaplain to overseas students, and a person might know a whole lot about, about banking or something. But when it comes to our, the sort of words we use in our faith, maybe they're quite ignorant. And so I'll try to explain words as I go along. So the first thing is, who made you? And the answer is, God made me. And why did God make you? God made me to know him, love him, and serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in the next. And really, you know, if you value that, if, if you understand that, then I don't think you'll really be unhappy. Because if you realize what this life's for, that you're on your way to God, and that it's only a journey, then you can put up with a whole lot of things. Supposing you're going along home, and you're cold, and you're hungry, and you're wet, but in half an hour's time you're going to be home, and you'll be able to get dry clothes, and, and have something to eat, and be among people who love you. Well, you don't mind even if you are cold and hungry and wet. But supposing there's somebody else going along, who's cold and hungry and wet, and he's lost his memory. And he doesn't know what he's meant to be doing. He doesn't know why he's here. doesn't know his name even. doesn't know where he comes from. doesn't know where he's going. He'll be miserable. And in this world, if people don't know why they're here, or what they're meant to be doing, or where they come from, or where they're meant to be going, then life gets pretty meaningless. And if they stop and think for a moment, they can get quite melancholy. So if you realize that you're on your way to God, who loves you, and who wants you to be happy with him forever in heaven, then this life you see it in its, in its true light. To his image and likeness did God made it. God made me to his own image and likeness. That's the language of Genesis, isn't it? Is this likeness God in your body or in your soul? This likeness of God is chiefly in my soul. How is your soul like God? My soul is like God because it's a spirit and it's immortal. Well, our bodies come from our parents, but we say that our souls, each of them, is a creation of, of God. God makes each individual human soul. What do you mean when you say your soul is immortal? When I say my soul is immortal, I mean my, that my soul can never die. When the body packs up and disintegrates, that something in us we call our soul, our vital principle, 
and this never dies. It's a, it's a spirit, it's a spiritual substance, and it will last forever. Of which must you take most care of your body, of your soul? I must take most care of my soul, for Christ has said, What of the profit of man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul? What must you do to save your soul? To save my soul, I must worship God by faith, hope, and charity. That is, I must believe in him, I must hope in him, I must love him with my whole heart. So we're going to, first of all, think of faith, then hope, then charity. So what's faith? Faith is a sort of knowledge that comes us from God. Just as the light that we get when we're baptized comes from God, so this faith we have, it's a sharing in God's knowledge. It's above our nature. If, if, if a dog knew how to think and talk, that would be supernatural for a dog. This faith we have, it's supernatural for us. And faith enables us to penetrate more into reality than any other sort of knowledge. By our human knowledge, we can know about matter, and we know how to get to the moon. But with this faith that God gives us, we know that in the Godhead there are three persons. We know that God's good, that he loves us. We know that heaven and hell exist. Really, it's our task to try to grow more in faith. Until we can see this world in the light of faith, we're not seeing it truly. If you're having a birthday party at home, your dog might enjoy himself running around, wagging his tail, thinking any moment a sandwich might fall on the floor or something. He thinks he understands everything. He doesn't understand anything at all. He doesn't understand that it's a birthday party. And if we look at this world simply in the light of reason, we think we understand everything. But unless we can look at it with eyes of faith, we don't understand it. Unless we realize that this world comes to us from God's love, he's placed it at our service to enable us to get to know him and love him, then if we can't see that, we're not seeing this world right. So faith is the most precious thing, and it's worth asking God to help you to love him in the way he wants you to love him. I don't know whether God wants you to be a Catholic or anything. All I can say about anybody is that God loves them, and God wants them to be holy. You can say that for sure about everybody. So, when you say your prayers, it would be worth asking God to help you to love him the way he wants you to love him, and to know those things about him that he wants you to know. So, what is faith? Faith is a supernatural gift of God which enables us to believe without doubting whatever God's revealed. Why must you believe whatever God's revealed? I must believe whatever God's revealed because God's the very truth and can neither deceive nor be deceived. How are you to know what is revealed? I'm to know what God's revealed by the testimony, teaching and authority of the Catholic Church. Well, that's a big claim. Who gave the Catholic Church divine authority to teach? Christ our Lord did when he said, Go and teach all nations. That's the sort of mandate. Now we move on to the Apostles' Creed. These things that we've sort of raced through, they'll explain a bit later on, I think. The chief things which God has revealed are contained in the Apostles' Creed. And this creed goes right back, to, more or less, to the beginning of the Church. It goes like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You know, they say Holy Spirit. It used to be Holy Ghost, of course. And really, I don't, just about the last ten years we've been told to say, I suppose it's the American influence on our poor English language, but it's the same thing, I mean. Whether you say Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, we're still talking about the third person of the Holy Trinity. This is the thing I explained to my good Nigerians. Our English language has two sources, from the Teutonic and from the Latin. Well, the German word for breath, I think it's Geist, and the Latin word for breath is Spiritus. Anyhow, we've switched from Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit, but you can say what you like. How is the Apostles' Creed divided? The Apostles' Creed is divided into twelve parts or articles. The first article of the Creed is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. What is God? God is the Supreme Spirit, who alone exists of Himself, and is infinite in all perfections. God alone exists of Himself. Everything else that exists, gets its existence from God. Many, many beings in existence. They all get their existence from God. God alone exists of himself. That distinguishes him from everything else. All being, all reality, comes ultimately from God. Why is he called Almighty? God's called Almighty because he can do all things. With God all things are possible. Why is God called Creator of heaven and earth? God's called Creator of heaven and earth because he made heaven and earth and all things out of nothing by his word. What we say is that originally God created it. Had God any beginning, God had no beginning. He always was, he is, he always will be. Where is God? He's everywhere. They tell a story of, I think it was St. John Bosco, when he was a boy at school, and the teacher said, I'll give an apple to anyone who can tell me where God is. And he jumped up and said, Now I'll give two apples to anyone who tells me where God isn't. God's everywhere. Does God know and see all things? God knows and sees all things, even my most secret thoughts. Is God anybody? He's nobody. He's a spirit. Is there only one God? There is only one God. Now, everything on this page so far would be agreed to by any Muslim, any Jew. We're now moving on to the Christian position. Are there three persons in God? There are three persons in God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Are these three persons three gods? These three persons are not three gods. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one and the same God. This isn't a contradiction in terms. We're not saying there's three gods in one God or three persons in one person. We're saying there's three persons in one God. If you're patient, I'll sort of try to say a little bit about it later on. But uh, this mystery of the Holy Trinity, we can never understand it completely. Who can understand God? I've read books about it, but it makes it all seem so simple. But when I've shut the book, I'm as confused as ever. And for my part, I'm quite happy to think of it as a sort of mystery. But, once we're baptized... We look at this mystery from the inside. That's to say, our baptism makes us one with Jesus. And so we view the Holy Trinity not from as a sort of outside spectator, but from inside. We look at the mystery through the eyes of Jesus, and the Father is our Father, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of love who binds us all together. 
What's this mystery of the three persons in one God called? The mystery of the three persons in one God is called the mystery of the blessed Trinity. Trinity really is just a Latin word meaning three in one. What do you mean by a mystery? By a mystery I mean a truth which is above reason but revealed by God. And this mystery of the Holy Trinity, we can't understand it, but if we accept it, then it explains a whole lot of things. You can't look at the sun at midday, but in the light of the sun you see everything else. We can't understand this mystery of the Holy Trinity, but in the light of this mystery a lot of things become clear. Is there any likeness to the Blessed Trinity in your soul? With this likeness to the Blessed Trinity in my soul, as in one God there are three persons, so in my one soul there are three powers. Which are the three powers of your soul? The three powers of my soul are my memory, my understanding and my will. I must say, that never really helps me much. It's a fact that we've got one soul, one vital principle, and we can remember things sometimes at least, and we can understand them and we can want them, and they can all, all things which our soul does. But for my part, I prefer to think of this mystery as a mystery, with the Father as being my Father, and Jesus as having come to take possession of me in baptism, and the Holy Spirit living in me. What's the second article of the Creed? Now this is where it, it starts getting a bit nicer, I think. The second article of the Creed is, and in Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord. Who is he? Jesus Christ is God the Son, made man for us. That's a lovely sentence. Jesus Christ is God the Son, made man for us. Certainly it was for love of us that he became man. The shepherd looking for his lost sheep. Is he truly God? Yes, he's truly God. Why? He's truly God because he has one and the same nature with God the Father. That's the thing really to hold on to, that Jesus is God. And that is the central fact in our Christian faith. That Jesus is truly God, truly man. And again, like the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Who can understand it? How could you have one thing possessing the qualities of fire and ice? I don't know how you could do it. And I don't quite know how one person is God and man. I know that he is. Was he always God? Yes, of course. Always God, born of the Father from all eternity. Which person of the Blessed Trinity is he? He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Is he truly man? Yes, he is truly man. In the first two centuries, there were heresies concerning the person, the identity of Christ our Lord. Some of them questioned his divinity, some of them questioned his humanity. And I read somewhere that there were more heresies that thought he wasn't really man than thought that he wasn't really God. But he was really God and really man. Why is he truly man? He's truly man because he has the nature of a man having a body and soul like ours. Well, for me, what makes me understand it better is the fact that he was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary. A woman gives birth to a man, to a human being and he was born of her. So he must be truly man. Was he always man? No. He's been man only from the time of his incarnation. The Latin word for flesh, it's caro, or the genitive is carnis, and so incarnation means sort of enfleshment. What do you mean by the incarnation? I mean by the incarnation that God the Son took to himself the nature of man, the word was made flesh. God the Son, Enter the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
There he put on a human disguise, so to speak, and emerged as man. Without abdicating his godhead, he can't cease to be God. But there in the womb of Our Lady, he sort of put on his human disguise, became one of us, became our cousin. How many natures are there in Jesus Christ? There are two natures in Jesus Christ, the nature of God and the nature of man. Is there only one person in him? There's only one person in Jesus Christ, which is the person of God the Son. Now, that's a thing that takes a bit of digesting. What's nature? A thing's nature defines the sphere of its operations, what it can do. A bee has the nature of a bee, so he can fly around and collect nectar from flowers and make honey. A bird has the nature of a bird. It can fly around and make bird's nests. A dog has the nature of a dog. It can run around and bark. We have the nature of man. We can think things up and, and write and speak and so on. And God has the nature of God. He can create. Jesus Christ had two natures. He was equally at home in two completely distinct spheres of operation. He could behave as man without having to sort of put on an act, because he was man. He could behave as God without making an effort, because he was God. In the boat on the Sea of Galilee, when he was tired and fell asleep, and he woke up and said to the storm, Stop. And the storm stopped. But he slept as a tired man sleeps in his human nature. And he woke up and saw the storm getting a bit inconvenient and told it to stop, and it stopped. He spoke then as God. All he did was done by the God-man. And sometimes he acted in his human nature, sometimes in his divine nature, like at the tomb of Lazarus. Everyone was weeping, and Jesus wept too. And then he said, take away the stone and Lazarus come out. He wept as man. He, he raised Lazarus from the dead as God. On the cross he died in his human nature, rose from the dead, because he's God. And so there's never been anyone like our Lord, and there never will be again. He's God who became one of us. And he's only one person. One person can't be two people. And the person is the person of God the Son. I say that in the early centuries of the church there are many heresies about this. Believe me, there are today. You really want to hold on to that fact that Jesus is truly God, truly man. There are people now, Christians now, talking as though our Lord wasn't God, that he wasn't sure who he was, that he had to sort of grope for his identity, and it wasn't like that. He's God. As God the Son, he always saw his Father. And if we try to penetrate the mystery of Christ's knowledge, then I think we're perhaps getting a bit imprudent. There's a saying somewhere, he who searches after majesty will be overwhelmed by glory. I remember in the seminary, the lecturer saying that, uh, you know, we can't get uh, too deep in this. We get out of our depth very quickly. Anyhow, Christ our Lord is truly God, truly man, and he knew who he was. Why was he man? Now, this is where we can understand this. God the Son was made man to redeem us from sin and hell, 
to teach us the way to heaven. We can't understand how these things happen, how God becomes man. But he's told us why he's come here. He's come here to save us. To save us from hell, and to show us the way to heaven. What's the holy name Jesus means? It means Savior. And uh, it's not a bad idea. Just give your head a little bow when you hear that holy name Jesus. It's used as an oath. Well, it shouldn't be. It's the holy name. But the name of Jesus, St. Paul says, every knee must bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Christ is the Lord in the glory of God the Father. When we hear that name Jesus, or when we say it, it's not a bad thing to give your head a tiny imperceptible bow as an act of interior adoration. The name Christ means anointed. The word Messiah means anointed. Christ is just put into Greek. The Jews knew that a great prophet was coming who would be a descendant of King David. And uh, their kings were anointed with oil. Samuel poured oil on David's head when he made him king. Their priests were anointed with oil. Moses poured oil on Aaron's head when he made him priest. This great priest king who was going to be coming, they called him simply the Anointed One, Messiah. And in Greek that is Christos. That's how we get the name Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? As God, Jesus Christ is everywhere. As God made man, he's in heaven and in the blessed sacrament of the altar. Well, when we get on to the Mass, we'll be dealing with, with that again. But well, we now start on the third article of the Creed. The third article of the Creed is, Who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. What does it mean? It means that God the Son took a body and soul like ours in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. It means that God fertilized Our Lady and God the Son himself took up his dwelling there. So the child he conceived, it was God the Son. Had he any father on earth? He had no father on earth. St. Joseph was only his guardian or foster father. How do we know that? Well, I suppose from our blessed lady, nobody else. Where was our Saviour born? He was born in a stable at Bethlehem. If you say your rosary, one day maybe you will. But that's what we think about when we're saying our rosary. Uh, our Lord being born there in such poverty and simply for love of us. That he left all his glory in heaven and came to be born there in such a poor way, simply for us. It's a thing worth thinking about because in that stable it's the source of all the world's joy. If at that time you were looking for the happiest place on earth, where would it be in that poor stable? As though God, trying to show us where our true happiness lies, went to great pains to exclude all the sources of happiness that perhaps we get used to and think are needed. And he shows us in that deprivation and poverty... He shows us the most perfect happiness because really it's a true thing that our happiness not only in the next life but also in this depends on the relationship that we enjoy with Jesus Christ and our Blessed Lady in her heart. What joy, St. Joseph, what joy in his heart. Well, when was he born? He was born on Christmas Day. Mind you, we don't know when he was born really. Uh, December the 25th, it was a sort of pagan feast when the days started getting longer. 
and the first missionaries found that all these good pagans had been used to having great parties on December the 25th. So they said, well, we'll they can go on having their parties, but they're going to start celebrating now the birth of our Lord. He could have been born on December the 25th. But anyhow, that's the day that we celebrate his birth. The fourth article of the Creed is, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, I means suffered during the governorship of Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate was the man who happened to be governor of Judea at the time of our Lord's suffering and death. What were the chief sufferings of Christ? They were first his agony and his sweat of blood in the garden, that's in Gethsemane, which happened on the night before he suffered, when, after the Last Supper, he went to the Garden of Olives, and the thought of our sins and the thought of what he'd have to suffer for them they really crushed him, and he sweated blood. Then he's being scourged, the pillar. Mind you, that pillar doesn't come in Scripture, but maybe it was because they always scourged people tied up to a pillar. But it's always the tradition that he was tied to a pillar for his scourging and crowned with thorns. And then thirdly, he's carrying his cross, his crucifixion, and his death between two thieves. The word crucifixion means just being nailed to a cross. What are the chief sufferings of our Lord called? They're called the Passion. That word Passion, just the Latin word for suffering. Passio means suffering. On crucifixes, you sometimes see above the body of our Lord the letters I-N-R-I. And people sometimes ask what that means. Well, they put uh, a board over his head giving the cause of his condemnation. And what Pilate wrote was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews... Mind you, the Jews didn't like that, and they asked Pilate to change it. They wanted Pilate to say, he says he's the king of the Jews, but Pilate said, no, what I've written, I've written. He was fed up with them. Well, it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, because everyone would understand one of those languages. And uh, in Latin, the, the Latin for Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, is Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, and the first letters of those words are I-N-R-I. So if you see I-N-R-I, just it's short for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Why did he suffer? He suffered to atone for our sins and to purchase for us eternal life. And you know, this is a thing we ought to think about. And it's obvious that God wants us to think about it. Because there's such a big space given to this in the Gospel narrative. Whole years of our Lord's life in the Gospel are passed over with hardly a mention. But as soon as we get to the, to the Passion, the whole action slows up, and almost every hour we know what happens. We ought to think of how much Jesus suffered for our sins. If ever you go into a Catholic church, you will see round the walls 14 pictures or carvings showing our Lord carrying his cross, there are 14 of them. It starts off with our Lord being condemned by Pilate, and it ends with him being laid in the sepulchre. They're called 14 stations, as was a station being a, a stopping place. Place where something stops, or maybe where we, we stop to watch Jesus go past. From the beginning, almost of the church, when there was freedom for Christians, I mean, people liked to go to the Holy Land to see where our Lord lived, and to go to Jerusalem, to see where he suffered. And one of the main things that pilgrims did was to go on the sorrowful way 
may go there, and I suppose the guide would point out, this is where he fell, this is where he met the holy women, and so on. And when pilgrims came back home, they'd put up little shrines to remind them of what they'd seen at Jerusalem, just like outside some Catholic churches you see a shrine like Lourdes. People had come back and, uh, and put up these reminders of what they'd seen in Jerusalem, and they gradually got standardized into these 14 tableaus. And when the Muslims conquered all the holy places, and pilgrimage to the Holy Land got more and more difficult and expensive and dangerous and finally impossible, then these, this devotion of the, of the stations of the cross, it became very popular. And it's very profitable to go into a church sometime and just wander around looking at those stations, thinking, this is what Jesus suffered for love of me. The whole art of living is to learn how to carry our cross. We've all got something to suffer. And God wants us to use our suffering profitably. There's no coming to heaven without carrying our cross, without some suffering, either willingly or unwillingly. And so you could say the whole art of living is to learn how to carry our cross profitably. Well, if you are mad on tennis or something, you might look at it on television at Wimbledon, say, to see how, how, how the champions do it. And if we want to learn how to carry our cross well, to see how God the Son carries his cross, that's quite sensible. So you might try it sometime, just to sort of go into a church and go around those stations thinking, this is how much Jesus has loved me. So now we're number 56. Why is Jesus Christ called our Redeemer? He's called our Redeemer because his precious blood is the price by which we were ransomed. If you don't mind, I'm going to have another bit of a sort of uh, chat about this. Our redemption was done on Calvary. But you can distinguish between objective redemption and subjective redemption. Objective redemption is what Jesus did for us. Subjective redemption is when this is applied to ourselves. Objective redemption is when he shed his blood on Calvary for us. Subjective redemption is when his blood is applied to our souls to wash away their sins. That's to say, it's not enough that God should have opened heaven to us. We have to walk in. It's not enough that our Lord should have gone through all that for love of us. We have to accept it. It's as though somebody put a lot of money in the bank for you. You'd still have to write a check. And... If our Lord has suffered all this for us, then we have to profit from it by loving him, by trying to turn away from sin, by trying to do what he tells us to do. So objective redemption is perfect and complete and 100%. Subjective redemption will go until the end of the world. And we apply this to ourselves, we make is objective redemption uh, valuable for us by accepting Christ as our Savior, by accepting Him as our God, by trying to do what He tells us to do, by trying to love Him. And I suppose my job uh, is to try to apply this redemption to myself, make it subjective for myself, and to try to help other people to uh, profit 
from this death, which is of such infinite value, and yet needs to be applied to souls. On what day did he die? He died on Good Friday, called Good, because that's the day when God showed us how much he loves us, when he paid the price of our sins, so to speak. Where did he die? On Mount Calvary. Back in Wolfus Scully's Calvary, I think it is. Hebrew, I think it's Golgotha. Uh, it may have been a, a hill shaped like a skull. It was just outside Jerusalem. Uh, now the city's grown. It's inside. In fact, there's a, there's a church there on it. On some crucifixes, underneath the body of our Lord, you see a skull and crossbones. Well, there used to be a sort of legend that uh, Adam was buried underneath the cross. And so that skull and crossbones underneath the uh, body of our Lord, I read somewhere, is meant to remind us of that. Those were the days when people thought the world was, the world started in 4004 BC. Uh, but if you, if you see a skull and crossbones, that's what it means. Why do we make the sign of the cross? First, to put us in mind of the Blessed Trinity. Secondly, to remind us that God the Son died for us on the cross. How are we reminded of the Blessed Trinity? In making the sign of the cross, we are reminded of the Blessed Trinity by the words, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know how to do that, you, you, well, I was told to join three fingers together, and you touch your forehead and say, in the name of the Father, and you touch your breast and say, of the Son, your left shoulder of the Holy, and then your right shoulder, Spirit. And so you make the sign of the cross on yourself. And you may see Catholics sort of flickering their fingers in front of them. Uh, you be sure they're real born Catholics. Because we're not meant to do it in, in a quick, hasty way, but we should do it with reverence. When St. Bernadette saw our Blessed Lady at Lourdes, she saw Our Lady make the sign of the cross. And it wasn't quite like St. Bernadette made it, because St. Bernadette did it rather quickly. And so she started copying Our Lady the way Our Lady did it. And people used to come from all over the place to see how Bernadette made the sign of the cross on herself, supposing that this was how Our Lady did it. In number 61, in making the sign of the cross, how we reminded that Christ died for us on the cross, and of course, by making the sign of the cross, we make the form of the cross on ourselves. So on to the fifth article of the Creed. He descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead. By the words he descended into hell, I mean that as soon as Christ was dead, his blessed soul went down into that part of hell called limbo. Hell there, really I think that's all old English, meaning the, the underworld. It obviously doesn't mean the hell of the damned. The word limbo is it, a Latin word for fringe or edge, and it's a place on, on the edge of heaven. Though it's difficult to talk about places in this world of spirits. What do you mean by limbo? I mean a place of rest where the souls of the just who died before Christ were detained. They couldn't go to heaven because heaven wasn't open to them. People like St. Joseph, Abraham, King David and people, obviously they couldn't go to hell. They'd have to go to heaven, but heaven wasn't yet open to the human race. And so they just waited. Why were the souls of the just detained in limbo? They were detained in limbo because they could not go up to the kingdom of heaven till Christ had opened it for them. What do you mean by the words, the third day he rose again from the dead? By the words, the third day he rose again from the dead, I mean that after Christ had been dead and buried part of three days, he raised his blessed body to life again on the third day. That's, when we say the rosary, that's the first glorious mystery. And the thing I think of there sometimes is 
the great joy that filled the heart of our Lord, and I ask our Lord to give me that spiritual joy, because the heart of Christ, when he rose from the dead, it was full of joy. I mean, he was going to console his blessed mother, he was going to console the apostles. He redeemed us. Heaven, you know, all the suffering was finished. So his heart was full of, uh, of divine joy. And our hearts should be too, because when we're baptized, we're baptized into the risen Christ. And if we hope, I know I'm talking now to people who were sort of believers, I suppose, but if we hope to draw people to God, how can we do it if we're miserable? The heart of a Christian should never be sad. St. Francis de Sales said, A saint who is sad is a sorry saint. I think it sounds better in French. But the saints were always joyous people. And so it's a, worth, a thing worth praying for, that God may give you interior joy. Because it's this, not just a feeling of well-being, but something that comes from God, a sort of overflow from the joy of heaven, which, which God wants to give to us. On what day did he rise again from the dead? He rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. They talk about the third day. He died on Friday afternoon. Then Saturday he, his body lay in the tomb. And then early on Sunday he rose from the dead. And the Jews apparently would call that three days. That's the way they, they worked things. A part of a day was called a day. And so it was on the third day anyhow, from, from Friday. The sixth article of the Creed is, He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. By the words, he ascended into heaven, I mean that our Saviour went up body and soul into heaven on Ascension Day, forty days after his resurrection. Again, when we say the rosary, we meditate on that. And a thing I pray for there is that I may have a greater desire for heaven. It would be a pretty awful thing if a Christian left this world, died, with no great desire to go to heaven if we left this world sort of reluctantly. I read of, a, of, of some bishop who was dying, he knew he was dying, and there was somebody standing by his bed and asked him what it felt like to be dying. And he said, I feel like a boy going home for the holidays. If we leave this world without a great longing for heaven and for the vision of God, I suppose that's something we shall have to acquire in purgatory. And so it's, it's a good thing to ask God to give you a great desire for heaven, because that's where our home will be forever, we hope. That's where God's gone to prepare a place for us. And our life on earth should be a longing for, for, for heaven. During the war, as a prisoner in, uh, in, in Singapore, oh, we used to talk about home, we used to think about home, we used to dream about home. And it was the prospect of getting home which kept everyone going. And in this life, if the thought of heaven doesn't help us, there's something wrong there. And so we, we should pray that, that God gives us a great longing to, to come to heaven. What do you mean by the words, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? By the words, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, I don't mean that God the Father has hands, but he's a spirit. But I mean that Christ as God is equal to the Father, and as man is in the highest place in heaven. The seventh article of the Creed is, From thence you shall come to judge the living and the dead. You'll come again from heaven at the last day to judge all mankind. Christ will judge our thoughts, words, works and omissions. And if you've got a Bible, you'll see the lots of footnotes at the bottom of the pages. That's all scripture references. Matt means St. Matthew's Gospel. 
and these quotes come from that. Christ will say to the wicked, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. He'll say to the just, Come, ye blessed of my Father, possess ye the kingdom prepared for you. It's all rather old English, I'm afraid, but we can't help that. I don't know what translation is taken from. There's lots of different versions of the Bible. I think it's worth reading them all. They're all good in different ways, and it's, it, it's worth just sort of reading different translations, just so you get a different slant on it. Will everyone be judged at death as well as at the last day? Everyone will be judged at death as well as at the last day. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. We don't go twice through this world. We have the one life. There's no sort of reincarnation, whatever people may say. We did not exist before God created our souls when we were conceived in our mother's womb. We have this one journey through this world. When we die, we are judged. And then our eternity is decided, is fixed. And if we die in the love of God, we'll go to heaven. Maybe not directly, maybe through purgatory, as we'll see. And if we've cut God out of our life completely and just don't want him, then God's got no cause but just to leave us where we are, separated from him, and that's in hell. And when we die, we're judged. We call that the particular judgment. And then, at the end of the world, when time comes to an end, there'll be a general judgment, and the whole human race will be gathered before Christ. And those people who've refused to adore him, they'll be compelled to adore him then, even against their, their will. And then the final separation will take place. The eighth article of the Creed is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now that word believe, it can have two senses. If you ask me where you get the train from to go to Southampton, I'd say, well, I believe it goes from Waterloo. But if I found that he went from Paddington, say, I, I wouldn't be staggered. I wouldn't be shocked. When I say I believe it goes from Waterloo, I mean that, so far as I know, it goes from Waterloo. But when I say I believe in the Holy Spirit, then I'm using it in a, in a different sense. And I believe with a divine faith, and this is an absolute certainty. So it's just worth bearing in mind that the word believe doesn't mean I'm pretty sure that God exists and that the Holy Spirit exists. It means that I know because God's revealed it. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Blessed Trinity. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. He's equal to the Father and to the Son. He is the same Lord and God as they are. The Holy Spirit is God. All that God does outside of himself, he does in the unity of his nature. And so, all that God does, the Holy Trinity does. The Incarnation, we attribute that to the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, it's something that was done by the Holy Trinity, like three men helping one of them get dressed. But we call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Love, and it's as though he's the soul of the Church. And sometimes when I'm at Mass, I'm in this chaplaincy for overseas students, and you can have... Fifteen different people, races, nations, all sorts there. And it's as though the Holy Spirit has gathered them from the, all the ends of the earth into the one body of Christ. Like in our body right now, I suppose there's elements, there's bits uh, taken from food that has come from all over the world. 
and some bits of inorganic salts that have been taken up into our body, and they're all living quite happily in our one body, yet coming from so many different places. And in the church is the Holy Spirit who's gathered into the body of Christ. People who are so different, and people who maybe who naturally haven't got much in common, apart from the fact they're all human beings. The Holy Spirit is like the soul of the church, drawing into Christ all these people who are capable of assimilation into him. When did he come down the apostles? He came down on Whit Sunday in the form of parted tongues, as it were, of fire. Whit Sunday, White Sunday it used to be. It used to be a great day of baptism for baptisms, and when people are baptized, they they wear a white garment. I suppose that comes from the vision of St. John, where he saw heaven and everyone wearing white garments. Anyhow, from the beginning, people seem to put on white garments when they're baptized. So it was called White Sunday, and they wore them for a week, so it was Whit Sunday, Whit Monday, Whit Tuesday, and so on. That's how we get the name Whit Sunday. It's Pentecost. And the Greek word for 50 is Pentecontor. And Pentecost was the 50th day after Easter. That's when the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles, in the form of parted tongues, as it were, of fire. And he came down on them to confirm their faith, to strengthen their faith, that is, to sanctify them, and to enable them to found the church. And so the Holy Spirit is God, and we adore him as God. But we have to remember that our religion is Christocentric. That is to say, we enter the divine family, so to speak, by being incorporated into Jesus Christ in our baptism. There's a tendency to talk as though the Holy Spirit were the center of our religion. Well, God's the center of our religion, I suppose. But Jesus did say, nobody comes to the Father except by me. He's the way. And it's our task in life to become more and more assimilated into Christ. We think of that again in the Rosary, when our Blessed Lady, immediately after the Annunciation, went to visit her cousin St. Elizabeth. What's happening inside her? The Holy Spirit is fashioning Christ. And when I say that mystery of the Rosary, I sometimes think how our life here in this world is an intimate dependence on Mary. I'll go into that later, but because our whole task is to be is to let Christ take over more and more, become more and more Christ-like. This is a work that's done by the Holy Spirit in a sort of intimate dependence on Mary. And as I think of Our Lady going along and Christ being secretly and silently fashioned in her womb, so I think that if only I try to be completely docile to grace, so the Holy Spirit will make me more Christ-like. And really, that's our job in this life, isn't it? Remember to say some prayers tonight to talk to God. God bless you.